If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. You can never study the book of Romans enough. Paul has given us a great contrast throughout this book between the sinful ways that we opt for and the righteous standing before God that he's freely provided in his own son. And so what Paul does is Paul talks to us about justification, that you're declared righteous before God. Then he talks to us about sanctification. How do you grow in your relationship with God? How do you deal with sin that constantly wants to hold you down? And he tells us all about that in chapter 6. What he proves to us in Romans 7 is, is that your flesh can't do it. Your flesh will fail every time. Instead, Jesus has overcome that as well. And so what we find out is that living an exemplary life is not about personal achievements, and it's not about the brilliance that we can obtain. We actually find out that it's about giving up, stopping, quitting, quitting. I sometimes think of that funny bumper sticker I see for some people. Smokers usually have it, rehabs for quitters, that kind of thing. It's kind of dark and sadistic. But here's the thing, I'll tell you, Christianity is for quitters. To quit living your life, to give it up, to recognize it's not worth living, that everything about it is fleshly and wrong. It's everything that God seeks to redeem, and the only life worth living is the life that God has provided in his son. And so by us getting out of the way and inviting Christ to have his way, we actually find that we can live on a plane, a higher plane that is profound and extraordinary. Now, Paul culminates all this in Romans 8, saying it all ends in a glorification. It all ends in a standing with God. It all ends in a harmony with God, in, 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 in an in a experience with God after life is said and done. There's so much more. This is just a blip. This is just a slight marker in time compared to the eternity that is to be had. And what you will find out is the more that you desire for Christ to be all that he desires to be in your life, it will cost you in this life because people will ridicule you. They will mock you. They will persecute you. They will hate you. And even some will kill you. But what he says is for what you're getting ready to see, it is all worth it. Because whatever life is offering right now is not worth having. And so he's trying to give us proofs of this. And so one of the profound things he tells us, let me give you a for instance in Romans 8. If you look here at verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps with our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's saying when you are in times of persecution and you don't know how to pray, it's okay. You can give up trying to pray because the Spirit inside of you is praying perfectly for you because he knows God's will. That's an encouragement. That's an encouragement not to sit here and say, because life is coming down all around me and because my own family hates my guts because of the gospel, because I stand for the truth, I can deal even though I can't pray. Why? Because my actions don't dictate my standing with God, and when I can't work, God is still working through me. Does everybody see how that would be an encouragement? Now, I apologize. My glasses were dirty, so I had to clean them off. But then he gets into something profound. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, how? According to his purposes. And his purpose is for every single believer in Christ to participate in this great, glorious, grand time in the future known as the adoption as sons. Something that the world is groaning for, Something that you today are groaning for. You ever noticed when it's cold that you hurt a little bit more, right? Bengay and sports cream seem like a much better solution for the day. No one, stop lying. Everybody seen that little bitty, that little bitty thing? It almost looks like a lip balm thing, but it's got like a dragon on it and a lot of Chinese writing. Tiger, Tiger balm. I used to call it dragon juice. I don't know, whatever. 
It's got a tiger on it. You figured I would at least got that, but no. Man, you put that stuff on, <laughs> soothing. Jay's the only person I know about. Jay, put that on your tongue. Okay, moving on. <laughs> and so here's what we see. Let me read 29 and 30 because Paul is giving reasons why you should continue to trust even when life is coming down around you. And here's the example that he gives us. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And, the, and those, sorry, these whom he justified, he also glorified. I was trying to think of a succinct way in order to put this together, and I couldn't find it, but I found somebody else that could say it. Could we bring up the Leighton Flowers <coughs> quote here? Paul means that believers know from observation of God's past dealings with those who love him that he has a mysterious way of working things out for the greatest good. By observing the stories of the saints of old, those called to accomplish his redemptive purposes, believers can rest in the knowledge of this truth. God can take whatever evil may come our way and redeem it for good. Believers can know this because God has been doing it for generations. And this is what 29 and 30 are talking about. You can look all throughout the Bible and see generations past that those whom he was pre-acquainted or knew from before had an intimate relationship with, he also predestined them to a great and glorious end. And that was to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, the more that Jesus Christ was shining through in their lives as they were seeking faithfully after God, the more that he was exalted, the more that he became the preeminent focus, or sorry, the, yeah, the preeminent focus, not eminency as in time, but eminence, preeminence, as in first place, as in worth it, as in worth giving my life for, as in top dog number one, the reason why I make decisions is because I want to know what Jesus thinks about it, and so that's the direction I'm going to go, that he would have first place in those situations. And so now we find out that those that he predestined, he also called. Now there's a belief that goes around that says that God has two kinds of calls, that there is a general call, and that general call is the calling of the gospel to every person that they need to believe in Christ. But the problem is, is that since God didn't pick who was going to be saved before time ever began, not everybody can respond to that call. Now, I wholeheartedly reject that entire notion. The Bible simply preaches personal responsibility. We are able to respond to God in history. And so they'll say, and then there's an effectual call. That is the call where people finally wake up because God has given them the ability to wake up because if he wouldn't have worked on them beforehand, they would remain dead in trespasses and sins and go to hell and, oh yeah, by the way, they're to blame for something that they can't help. Now here's the problem. That was formulated in a tower somewhere, not in the pages of Scripture. And that is not what called is talking about here. In fact, from the context, where did we just previously see the word called? God works all things for the good of those that love him, that are called according to his what? Purposes, and in the context, his purpose is to bring people to this glorious moment of the adoption as sons. So if they've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, for Christ to be everything in their life, that's what he desires for them, that's what he set forward for people who love him, then what we find is, is that they have been called to an opportunity for that to be manifest to maximum potential. That's the idea. Every single believer in Christ has something that they have been called to. Abraham, who we're going to see extensively next week, he was called to leave everything he knew as comfortable and to go to a land where he didn't know. Now, I often say to you, how many of you would get in the car and drive away not knowing where you're going? Abraham did that. Why? God told him to. He trusted God. Abraham was having a crisis with God's promises. God took him outside and said, look up at the stars. Can you number them? So, so, so shall your descendants be. That should be a tongue twister. And it said, Abraham believed God. 
and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And then he was called to offer up the very manifestation of the promise God made his son Isaac. Will you trust me? Even though everything in life points you in a different direction. Even though worldly thinking tells you not to. Because you don't want to lose what you hold on to so dear. Abraham was called to more. David was called to be the king of Israel. That doesn't mean that he always ruled righteously, but that was his calling. It was a ministry that he had to dispense. And Christ is shown as preeminent through him as he lived faithfully in his calling. Paul was called to minister to the Gentiles. They were the dirty people of the first century as far as Jews were concerned. And his ministry was completely foreign, no pun intended, in that situation to where they had to have debate about it in Acts chapter 15. Yet Paul still continued, go to the Gentiles, go to the Gentiles, go to the Gentiles, and preach the exact same Savior that the Jews had. He had a calling to fulfill. And he's such a one that says, anything that I've gained in this life, I consider it as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Why? Because Christ was preeminent in his life, and as he fulfilled his calling, this became more and more vibrant to those people around them. Does that make sense? Calling is about what God has called every single one of us to in order to show himself through us. To have this exaltation of Jesus shown. This is the way he's worked with everybody in the past. He's not working any differently today. Same God. Same God. So now I picked a life that we could all deal with, and that's Jesus. But before we move to Jesus and his call on on earth, You've got your paper here. Let's talk about the word call. The word call, let me give you a definition for it so that you see it. You don't have to write it all down. It'll all be on the website later. But for our purposes of moving forward to how this works, I want to show it to you. Number one, the Greek word is kaleo. The idea here is to identify by name or attribute, to call or to call somebody by name is what you do. Number two, to request the presence of someone at a social gathering such as you've invited them, you've called them to come be a part of your gathering. The third one is to use authority or to have a person or group appear as if you're summonsing someone. It is a call that they should come before you. But the fourth one I thought was very interesting. From the meanings summon and invite, there develops the extended sense, choose for receipt of a special benefit or experience. To have a call in life to have a calling in life. Let me ask you a question before we venture into seeing this in Jesus' life. Do you know what you're called to in life? Do you know what your calling is? If you're here today and you experience incredible dissatisfaction, if you feel unsettled, if you're very frustrated by what goes on and how you spend your time or where you are in life, I will guarantee you this. You don't know your call. You don't know what you've been called. And so my goal today is to show you that God works through people in leading them to fully fulfill what he's called them to do because it's the greatest possible life that they could live. And then we're going to ask you about your call and how to know what that is. So let's look at Jesus. We're going to try to stay in the same book. So everybody turn to the Gospel of John. What I'm thankful about is that the Holy Spirit has inspired John in his writings to give us little markers and you're going to see those become more and more evident as we move through. Now John chapter 2 is a good place to start with the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee if for no other reason that it helps get the legalism out of us. John chapter 2 look at verse 1 on the third day There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine! And he said, Lady, they shouldn't have been drinking anyway, because they're going to go to hell if they keep doing that. Is that what he said? No. It says here, and Jesus said to her, Woman, and by the way, that's not like, Woman! That's not what that is. It was a very endearing term, okay? Sometimes we read it, 21st century mindset. Don't do that. Woman, what does this have to do with us? And look what he says, very odd. And of course, you're like, Jesus is so weird, right? 
But look what he says. My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? We keep reading through John, we're going to see what it means. But it's very interesting to see here that there's a problem. Mary asks him to get involved, to rectify it. And he's got this strange response, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Let's keep going on. Keep that in the back of your mind. John 7. Look at John 7. This is one of the benefits of reading a book entire, entirely from beginning to end all the way through. You see the thematic repetitions that come through here. John 7. Let's look at verse 1. <clears throat> now just so that we remember our geography real quick, if you want to just think with me, remember that Galilee is north. Samaria is in the middle. Judea is in the south. Everybody remember that? Just so we know what we're dealing with here. Chapter 7 of John, look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. That's up north. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea. That's in the south. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now that seems like a good reason not to go there. Verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, and real quick, that's not his brothers in Christ. That's not his brothers from a religious sex. That's not, it, it's his brothers from the same mother, okay? It's his biological half-brothers. That's who it is. I don't care what people have told you. They're wrong. It says here, therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you're doing. That means he had disciples that were down there, people who followed him in Judea, not the 12 that were hanging out with him. Verse 4, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now that's a great kickback because we have the book of Jude and the book of James, which were written by his half-brothers. Verse 6, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here. Everybody see that? Mark it, it's important. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Do you think that Jesus has a handle on his life and where it's going? Do you think he understands when and where he needs to do what? Everybody see this? My time has not yet come. My time has not yet fully come. My hour is not at hand. Look over at verse 28. Because he ends up going to the feast in secret, but not for the reasons that they wanted. He goes for the reasons that the Father is called of him. Look over in chapter 7, verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me, of course, talking about the Father. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now stop for a second. What would that look like? I'm from the Father and you don't know him. And they're sitting there like, what's that look like? They did not seize him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. Ah. That's the response Jesus wants, believing in him. It says here, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Maybe somebody else will get the job done. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Does everybody see the relationship between because his hour had not yet come and the whole pronunciation of for a little while longer 
I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. Does everybody see there's an obvious transition here? This is the lighting of the fuse that sets off what the hour is. How about the next chapter, chapter 8? Look at verse 17. Excuse me. He's talking to the Pharisees here. Look at verse 17. He says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. It's called the law of two witnesses. You have to have two witnesses in order to verify something is true. Verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself. There's number one. And the father who sent me testifies about me. There's witness number two. So they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Notice how public his ministry was, but watch this. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Does everybody see that something about his hour coming has to do with people having the ability to lay hands on him and do something to him? What does this tell you about his hour coming? What is it? What do you think? Hey guys, this is a really big small group. Throw it out. It's his what? It's got to do with his death and his crucifixion. The things that are going to lead to this. Jesus has a calling. He has a ministry. He's been chosen for a purpose. He's been chosen to give his life for the sins of the world. So notice, no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now turn over to 12. John 12. This is a little bit longer section. And here's what's interesting about this. John 12, look at verse 20. You'll notice that the number, if you have the New American Standard, that it's in bold. And that's because it's starting a new paragraph for us. And there's something very interesting that happens. Notice it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. A Greek in this situation would have been a Gentile. Now up until this time, the main heat and altercation has come from Jews. But what's interesting is, is now Gentiles are getting involved. In fact, if you look at John's gospel and you check it out, there's no mention of Gentiles whatsoever in his gospel. There's very few mention of Greeks that go on, of which this is the first one that takes place. And everything else that would deal with the nation in his gospel always deals in reference to the nation of the Jews. So there's something very pivotal that happens here. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now Philip came and told Andrew. Why Philip didn't go directly to Jesus, we don't know. But what's interesting here is notice that then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. What's interesting about Andrew and Philip and the fact that Philip is the one who had the interaction with the Greeks is that Philip is also a Greek name. So there's something about this ministry that's gone on widespread to the Jews, and now the Gentiles are starting to catch on and take notice of something. Something is starting to pop open here. Now here's what's interesting. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them. Now stop, think about the question. Andrew and Philip show up. Jesus, there are some Greeks that want to speak with you. They're asking to have an audience with you. They want to talk with you about something. And here's Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Is this different from what we've seen before? Yes. The hour has come. Here is the pivotal turning moment of John, just from the language that we've seen. The hour has come for what? What is the purpose? What's it say? To be what? Glorified. Keep that in your mind. Now let me ask you a question real quick. Is the idea of glorified and living out an obedient life according to what God has called, isn't that everything that Paul's really talking about in Romans 8? regardless of what persecution happens. The idea is that glorification is out of head, is out ahead, and you don't just get it as a free gift that you're going to have every believer in Christ. You can have it in abundance if you're willing to submit to the will of God in it. 
I don't know of anybody that submitted to the will of God greater than Jesus Christ. Now that Gentiles are interested in having an audience with the Messiah, the hour has come and glorification is up ahead. Look what he says here. Truly, truly, I say to you, and I don't want you to miss this because we're going to come back to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. Or the word there is also soul. We saw this quite a while ago. Whoever loves his soul loses it. And he who hates his life in this world, his soul in this life, will keep it to life eternal. Not talking about the free gift you received, but a reward to be had because you said, me living for myself in this world, it's not worth it. So I would much rather give it up and let Jesus be all that he can be through me. And that will incur a greater recompense in the life to come. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Did you guys just see that? You guys realize that God is chomping at the bit for people to honor in his presence. And the only reason why they would be worth honoring is because of their servanthood, their following of Christ. Everybody see that? I don't know about you, but that wakes me up a little bit. That makes God's looking to honor me if I will submit to him for everything that Jesus wants. Yeah, that almost sounds heretical. It would sound heretical if it didn't come from the lips of Jesus himself. Shouldn't I be honoring God? Yes, but you don't understand. By honoring God with everything you have, he turns around and wants to let you know he's here to honor you. Now, does that become a man-centered type of theology? No, I'm just telling you what Jesus says. Jesus says this is what the payback looks like in glorification. Verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this, what? Purpose. Those who are called according to his purpose. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it, and will glorify it again. How had God already glorified his name? Because Jesus had fully submitted himself to the Father. God was getting glory. I will glorify it again. Why? Because Jesus says, I would rather die than sin. Do we take our Christianity that seriously? Doing exactly what Christ has told me is so much more important than sinning because sinning deals with self and falsehood, and deceit. Jesus wasn't willing to do it. Notice what God says. I will glorify my name again. The Father is getting glory, and he will get glory. Notice what it says, verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Come on, guys, right? You're sitting there on the outside going, come on, guys! Did you realize the Father just spoke? Well, he spoke, but it sounded like thunder. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And you say, come on, guys! Don't you realize that God has spoken? Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, how many? All men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. I love it when John gives us a little bitty commentary after something that's stated to clear up the issue so we don't get it wrong. Notice Jesus is pointing to his crucifixion. When I am crucified at that moment, I will draw everyone to myself. Do you realize that God has been drawing people through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years? Every single person. It's a way that God has already acted in history so that there would be a tug towards the gospel already. It's not anything we have to do. God's already working. This is one way that he does it. Now, what's interesting about this is we're starting to see what does it mean for the hour to come? What does it mean for the Father to be glorified? What does it mean for there to be glory there? How does it come now and what is it leading to? Now, 
Here's what's interesting. Do me a favor. Look back one chapter, okay? To chapter 11, and look at verses 51 and 52. And this is Caiaphas, the high priest. They're talking about, what are we going to do about Jesus? Jesus is a troublemaker. He's a radical. He's a revolutionary. He's all kinds of crazy. He's weird. We got to get him out of the way. He's going to lead the people astray. Caiaphas makes this pronunciation that one man must die for the nation. And here's what's interesting, because John gives us two verses of incredible commentary. Look at verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only. Speaking of the Jews, right? Look what it says here. But in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What is that? Gentiles. Greeks. This is what makes chapter 12 verse 20 so pivotal in seeing this. What is he saying here? Saying that God's grand design for Jesus Christ is to give his life for the world so that they would no longer be separated into these racial extremes, but he's looking to do a brand new work where he unites the two into one and makes one new man, one new body. Ephesians 2 verses 15 and 16. Everybody see that. That's the goal. That is the process. That is the purpose that Jesus came for. Now look at John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, there's the ascension, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice that the hour has come also includes the idea of ascension. Now, let's put it together for our brains. Jeopardy ain't going to get us on this one. Here we go. If the hour has come and it has to do with being handed over to people, and we said that deals with his crucifixion, and his hour had come, and the fact that when he'd be gathered again to the Father, and that talks about his ascension, what does that tell you that the middle event's also included, which is the resurrection? What is it for God to have his purposes worked out in the life of Jesus Christ, and for Jesus to live his life singularly focused on that one mission to see God's fulfillment through that? It is in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. How is that? Because that way Christ is maximally glorified, and the Father is maximally glorified. Does everybody see this? Yes? Who's asleep? Are we awake today? It's not on anyway. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 16. Stick with me here, please. I'm going to warn you, I might go just a little long. You're not surprised. Guys, this is important. Chapter 16, what's interesting about 13, 14, 15, and 16 is that the focus shifts away from Jesus dealing with the world at large, the Jews, the Gentiles, that kind of thing, the evangelistic portions, and he pulls back and wants Judas, puts into motion the idea of betraying him, and leaves. He's now got a concentrated audience of the 11, and it becomes discipleship time. And so this is wrapping up the end of discipleship time here in chapter 16. And look what he says in verse 28. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the fathers. And his disciples said, lo, now you're speaking plainly and you're not using a figure of speech. Because let's be honest, the disciples were going to be flat about it. They believed he was kind of weird when he talked too. And he says here, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you by this we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you. Why? So that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. How has he overcome the world? Because he is going to be obedient unto death and then watch the Father be glorified. Chapter 17, verse 1. Don't let the chapter break mess you up. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, now watch this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Everybody see, the hour is now here and it's, time, it's glory time. Everybody see that? Now watch this. Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. 
This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. That's how we know that his name had been glorified already, because it's glorified in Jesus' perfect obedience while on earth. Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, stop. You could just meditate on that for your devotions for the rest of the week, and it will blow your mind. The glory that Jesus had with the Father before time ever began, before creation was ever spoken into existence, is the same eternal glory that we're talking about in this instance. Look, he says here, verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I've given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The hour has come, it's time for glory, and those that were given to Jesus by the Father, that is not Christians, that is the eleven disciples. That's who it's talking about, because he talks about how he's developed them throughout ministry. And now that this work has been fulfilled, it is time for you to receive maximum glory, because I'm going to give my life for the sins of the world. Now let's turn back a couple of chapters. John 12. We saw a couple of Sundays ago that the cross of Jesus Christ was a predestined event by God. He set it up to happen in history so that people could be saved. This doesn't mean that he forces the hands of evil. It doesn't mean that he predestined the evil that took place in order to crucify Jesus. It means that he is omniscient knowing all things. And that he understands that in order for us to ever have a relationship with the Father, there must be an atonement for sin. I don't have enough blood in me to atone for all the sins that I've done. In fact, all the blood in me could maybe atone for one sin, and that's it. I'm in trouble for the other 16 billion, million, trillion, zillion that I've done. And it's the same for you. So Jesus dies. He fulfills his purpose, and the Father is glorified. And he is glorified. He fulfilled his purpose. I want to take you back to this pivotal moment because Jesus told us something that is applicable, not just to himself, but to every one of us. Chapter 12. Let's start in verse 23 here. Jesus answered to them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now watch this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, the seed has to give up just being a seed in order to be more. Does everybody grasp that? Anybody that's ever planted a garden, hopefully successfully, grabs that. It started with this, and it became so much more because it finally gave up. And as it received its nurturing and allowed for its exterior to be broken down, so much more could be manifested out of it. This is the illustration that Jesus gives. Verse 26, or I'm sorry, 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who desires to only be a seed and let's be honest for the reason why. You love you too much, and you love sin a whole lot because of how it makes you feel or look, whatever it is. Appearance is everything with people. Pride is everything inside of us. So let's recognize it for what it is. You know what? I just want to be a seed. God, leave me alone. You lose it. Does that mean goes to hell? No means the fact that you have nothing to show for living for God whatsoever because you refuse to. Look what it says after that. And he who hates his life. That sounds so mean. Here's what it means. It means you recognize that your life's not worth living. 
It means it's your best and really that great. You guys remember when I told you how good I've done in my flesh? What was it? Pizza Hut. October 1998, I was the employee of the month at Pizza Hut in Newburgh, Indiana. I have that, stop it. (laughs) I have that little plaque hanging in my office right next to the door, so every time I walk out, I can look at it and say, that's the best you can do. Because you know what? It is. That's the best I could ever do, because three months before that, I was almost fired. And I recognize if I'm going to keep my job, I got to do something different. So I tried real hard and I worked real hard. And they engraved some little letters on a plaque. Yay me. And that's it. And that's all. But if I'm willing to lose all that and say, here's the best I can do. And I recognize it's not good enough. Jesus, I need more. So this is where we step into this. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. In other words, it will be greatly rewarded. How does that happen? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's a reward that is given for faithfulness. But it only comes from living out your calling. And let me stress to you, you cannot live out what you've been called to apart from Jesus. I'm not talking about come to him to be saved, believe on him to be saved. I'm talking to every believer in this room who has decided that worldly approaches are much better than what the Father might have. Every single believer in here has been called to something. A great example I like to use is Zach. Zach is called to youth ministry. How do I know that? Because when I first started having conversation with him, The present situation he was in was not conducive to help him do ministry. And so he resigned from it and didn't have a position of ministry. Yet he was still ministering to youth. And when he put his hat in the ring to be considered for youth pastor here, and I'm having conversations with him, he looked at me one day and said, regardless if I get the position here or not, I'm still going to minister to youth. Nothing is going to stop me from what God has called me to do. Because Zach recognizes anything else that I would do is less because it's not from God. That's the difference. Now, I'm really excited because I've been working with Delano lately. Delano, stand up, man. There he is. Now, don't clap for him. He ain't done nothing yet. As Zach and I have been spending time with Delano, getting to know one another, in the Word of God together, going through discipleship together, talking about where his heart is. His heart's in Jamaica. He's from Jamaica. And he's telling me about the works righteousness gospel that they preach over there. You have to be baptized to be saved. And every Sunday when you come to church, all you hear about is you need to get saved, 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 you need to get saved. What that tells me is that no one's getting saved and no one has assurance of salvation. And the sheep that are there are starving because no one got beyond John 3.16. And the pastors that are telling them John 3.16, it's not John 3.16. So what are we doing? We're enacting a plan that in two years' time, Delano will be fully prepared for everything he needs to walk up out of this church and to go back to Jamaica to begin sharing the gospel of God's grace. Because that's what God has called him to do. And if he does anything else, it's less. It's wrong. It's sin. Now, here's the question. How do I know what God's called me to do? Let's answer it briefly with a lot of stuff that you already know. First passage, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. 
starting in verse 18. We should know this. In fact, it's the only thing we have to do for the rest of our life on earth. Look what it says. And Jesus came and spoke to them, verse 18, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How do I know what God has called me to do? Here it is. Whatever he's called you to do is never separated from evangelism and discipleship. Never. Well, God called me to this type of occupation. Yes. But he didn't call you there with the focus of making lots of money. He called you there with the focus of making disciples. Well, don't you realize I won't get any business that way? Who controls your calling? We sound like Moses. Uh, uh, Lord, 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 I, 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 I can't speak. What was God's response? Who made your mouth? Or in the Hebrew, stop it. Silly excuses. Underestimating God's preeminence over everything. And what does he tell you at the beginning of this? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And oh yeah, at the end, everywhere you go, I'm with you. There's never a place where you're alone. So as you're going, going to do what? Share the gospel. What should I do? Make disciples, evangelism, discipleship. It doesn't change. It doesn't stop. If what you're involved in right now is not sharing the gospel with people and discipling people, you are incredibly unsatisfied because you are not living out what God has called you to do. There is no other option or alternative. But what about, but what about, let me go ahead and answer all your questions. No. No. There has to come a time when we stop arguing with the Scripture and we start believing it. How about this one? You can write it down. You don't have to turn there. John 13. Here's another way that you know you're calling. John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know. All men. You know what that means? Lost people and saved people. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Our love for one another is the way that we exemplify our calling to others. Church has gotten enough bad rap lately. Thank you, Ravi Zacharias, for taking an incredible ministry that God could have blessed greatly and using it to manipulate women. We're so much better off in our message of the freedom from sin that the gospel brings in having eternal life. I wonder what he's saying in the face of the Lord right now. We've been called to love one another. So if you want to know what you're called to, it's never apart from evangelism and discipleship, and it's never apart from a love that needs to be exemplified in those relationships. Never. How about the next one? Write this one down. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Do you have the Holy Spirit as a believer in Christ? Yes. Indwelling. Forgive me, tongues. Indwelling and sealed for the day of redemption. And the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment through you. So God is already at work. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my what? Witnesses. You know what that has to do with? Evangelism. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Notice it has more to do with sharing Christ. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit in you. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. What do you need to be doing? Sharing the gospel. That's how you fulfill your calling. That's how you know what it is. How about the last one here? I thought this one was interesting. Colossians 3.14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You want to know how as a church we can be most unified? 
our love because of the truth. That's what it comes back to. How do I know what I've been called to? Because it involves evangelism, discipleship, love, unity, period. What the details of that look like, that's for God to show you. But I guarantee you this, right now Zach is involved in evangelism and discipleship. He's involved in loving those kids. He's involved in striving for the unity of the body. Right now, Delano is involved in evangelism and discipleship. That's what he's going to go there to do. He's going there because he loves those people. Thank God for it. You say, well, I just work at Quick Trip. Cool. You're there to evangelize and disciple and to love the people that God brings your way and to strive for unity in the body. doesn't matter the situation you find yourself in. The truth does not change. And if you want for the Savior to be maximally glorified in your life, then today is the day to submit to the calling. What has God called you to do? Why? So that Jesus will be preeminent in your life. Many brethren drawn to him. Let's pray. Father, every single believer in this room has a call. Maybe we've been in denial of that call. Maybe we've tried to suppress that call. Thank you, Lord, that we see that Jesus was not confused about his call. That even as we know about his history as a carpenter, He still taught. He still encouraged. He still called people to believe in him. He still invested in people by teaching them about who God is and what he has done. You are good, God. You define what goodness is, and you have called us for your good purposes. Father, help us to see that whatever time investment or occupation we hold, that it's not just punching a time card, that it's not just working for the weekend, that you have things that you desire to do through us. If we are content in being just a seed, Father, I pray that you shake us and you break us and you would show us all your heart's desire for our lives and that we would submit to you and that we would follow you and that we would open our mouths obediently for your name's sake. Jesus is worth it. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.